So if you have a Bible, why don't you take it and open to Romans 8, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17, and focus on 17. And if I were to give a title to this, it would be um, A Spectacular and Scary Promise. A Spectacular and Scary Promise. So let's set the stage starting at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer now for these friends is that the Holy Spirit would would testify to them that they are the children of God. If any is does not belong to Christ, I pray that Christ would woo that person into a union where they too belong to the family and have received the spirit of adoption by which they cry, Abba, Father. I pray that those who are wavering and fragile and feel uncertain about that relationship of your lordship over their lives and your fatherhood over their lives would rise in strength. That they would know by experience what it is to have the witness of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. That they are the children of God. So do that now. Do this word as I try to open it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our focus is on verse 17, and I'm calling it spectacular and scary. Spectacular because it says that we are the children of God and are therefore heirs of God. We will receive God's inheritance, and that is simply spectacular. God owns everything. And his children come into the inheritance of what he owns. And therefore, this is a immeasurably great promise. And it's scary because it says that we must suffer in order to get there. If children, then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, or if, we suffer with him, 
in order that we may be glorified with him. So that's that's the focus. The, the fact that all the children of God are heirs of God and will come into a immeasurably great inheritance. And the only way there is through suffering. So let's back up and notice verse 16. Because I really want you to experience the assurance that you're in that category of the children of God. And Paul is quite aware that everybody in this room struggles with that assurance. Everybody. Everybody. No exceptions. Unless you are totally dishonest. Everybody has experiences, highs and lows, where you're almost afraid to say it to yourself because you're supposed to be a, a mature Christian that you wonder if you're a child of God. And Paul would like to help you with that. He does. He writes this to help you with that. That's why it's in the Bible. And that's why he sent me here. So that's reality. So here's verse 16. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if you belong to Christ, and that's taken from verse 9, if you belong to Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. He who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ, it says in verse 9. So to belong to Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit. Well, what's he doing in there? He's testifying. What is he testifying to? That you are the child of God. That's the reality of verse 16. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And my question is, how does he do that? How, how, how does he do it for you? And my guess is the fact that most of you could not answer that question is why there is as much struggle as there is with assurance. Because he wants you to be able to answer that question. That, the Holy Spirit is not testifying in you so that you say, I don't know what that is. Isn't the Bible wonderful? It's going to answer that question for you now. So that you can know, oh, oh, it's happening. I'm his child. Because of this experience of verse 16, the Holy Spirit is testifying. How does he do that? What's that like this afternoon? Or right now. Let's go back and see two ways that he does it. Let's go to verse 13. Middle of the verse. Verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So if if trusting in and leaning upon by faith the Holy Spirit, you make war on the sins of your life. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For, now he explains why that is, what's the foundation of that statement? For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
So one of the things the Spirit does to testify, that is, to give evidence, what do witnesses do in the courtroom? They give evidence that somebody's guilty or not guilty. I was there, they say. I saw this happen. This mark on my hand happened when I touched that and I was there. I'm evidence that that can be used in this courtroom to settle this case. That's what witnesses do. Now, what is the Holy Spirit's evidence? What What is he testifying? He is testifying by leading you, it says in verse 14, leading you. If you are led by him, you're in. If you are led, you're a child. So one of the evidences that the witness is giving in the courtroom of your heart is, I lead you. Where does he lead you? That's the connection between verses 13 and 14. He leads you to kill sin. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Therefore, the leading has to do with the killing. So, one of the experiences of the Holy Spirit in testifying that you are the child of God is that when sin happens in your life, you make war. You hate it. If you right now are frustrated and angry at the sin in your life, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He is loud witnessing right now in your heart that you hate what you did yesterday. You wish you weren't doing it. It grieves your heart that you spoke that way to your wife, that you clicked on that pornography, that you were dishonest in that transaction. It's grieving your heart right now. That's God at work in your life. That's the Holy Spirit testifying your mind. That's the first way. Here's the second way. Verse 15. The Spirit gives rise to the cry, Abba, Father. So let's read the second half of verse 15. You have received a spirit, the spirit of adoption, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So where does this cry come from? It comes from the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are crying, Abba, Father. So I would ask you, does your heart cry to God, Father? My Father, my authority, my need meter, my Father. Now, you can program a computer to say those words, right? You can program a computer to say, Abba, Father. Now, it doesn't mean the computer is the child of God. So, words coming out of your mouth are not the issue. The the key word is cry. By the Holy Spirit, we cry. Cry. Paul, Paul uses kradzomai, the, the word cry, and not just mechanically say, to say, this is the way your heart ascends. Father, I need you. Father, I'm just a little child. I'm helpless in this world. I need a cosmic father. If that's the way your heart cries, that's the Holy Spirit. 
so you can know. He inclines my heart to hate my sin and make war on it and kill the deeds of the body and thus leads me and thus shows me that I'm Christ's and he wells up within me, creating a sense of need, a sense of fragility, a sense of insecurity, a sense of vulnerability in the sense, I need you, my God, as Father. I'm so orphan-like. Of course, self-sufficient people don't ever talk like that, and therefore they're not Christian. The Holy Spirit humbles us to hate sin and to need a father. That's his witness. He's witnessing by awakening a longing for a father in God. And by awakening hatred for what opposes that called sin. So you can know, you can feel the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason we have a Bible is because human beings don't know how to interpret what happens to them when they get saved. You don't, you don't know what words to use, you don't know what name to use, you don't know how to describe anything. You don't, you don't know anything without the Word. So this is the Word describing to you what's happening. When you felt a need of Father, and we felt hatred for sin, that's the Holy Spirit testifying that you are the child of God. Here's a, here's a confirmation now of what we've just seen by way of how the Holy Spirit testifies. If you go to 1 Corinthians 12, you don't need to turn there unless you want to. Chapter 12, verse 3, it says this in 1 Corinthians. No one speaking by the Spirit of God. So that sounds familiar, doesn't it? No one speaking by the Spirit says Jesus is accursed. So somebody speaks demeaning words of Jesus, you know they don't have the Holy Spirit. At least he's not prompting that. And then it it goes on. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now again, you can compare Program a computer to say Jesus is Lord. And the computer is not a subject of Jesus like he's calling for here. So what does it mean? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the witness and power and working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Answer is, no one can authentically say with meaning from the heart, He's my authority. He's my king. He's my treasure. I live for him. You can't ever talk like that without the Holy Spirit. And if if your heart leaps up to say that, the Spirit of God is testifying, you are a child of God. That's the way he does it. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say it and mean it. No one can say it and want it, except by the Spirit. Therefore, if you say it and mean it, if you say it and want it, then the Holy Spirit is at work testifying in your life. Now, verse 17. Paul gives an added reason 
to exult over God as our Father. And I'm shifting here from an explanation of how the Holy Spirit does it to letting Him do it right now by telling you how good it will be when it happens. The reason verse 17 is here saying what it is saying, the reason it is going to say that you are an heir of God and you are a fellow heir with Christ, the reason that spectacular promise is here is to awaken in spirit-touched people, spirit-moved people, a longing for this. So one of the evidences that you are a child of God and the evidence that the Holy Spirit is giving right now is that as I unpack the first half of verse 17, you really want this. This sounds juicy to you. You don't say, yeah, maybe. Really, I'd like to get home and watch a game, or, but this is not interesting to me. If that's true, the Holy Spirit's not doing it. But if you, if you have a sense, whoa, this is awesome. This my inheritance as a child of God, I can endure anything. So let's look at it. If you are children, then you are heirs. I'm at verse 17. Then you are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Stop. Just leave. We'll come to the second half in a minute. Let's ponder what it means to be an heir of God and what our inheritance is when we receive it and are glorified with Jesus. What is this inheritance? As you face the pleasures and the pains of life, what is it in the inheritance that God promises that makes those pleasures pale as if they were nothing compared to that? And what makes those pains become manageable till you get the inheritance. What is what is that in this in this text and throughout the Bible? We'll get verse eighteen. So you will get an inheritance provided you suffer with him. Now verse eighteen for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul wants you to share in such a stupendous hope of things, glorious things that will be given to you and revealed to you such that the sufferings become as nothing. These are not even, when you try to, Put the scales out here of how good it's going to be with the inheritance and how bad it is right now. It just, it just, no, it goes like this, right? The heavy thing is a good thing. <laughs> the inheritance outweighs the, the suffering totally. That's the point of verse 18, to say that the inheritance that's promised us is the glory that is to be revealed 
to us and is so great as to make every trouble seem small. So what is it? I'm going to take most of the rest of the sermon talking about it. Um, three things. Number one, it is, your inheritance is the world and everything in it. Chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans says this. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that he would be the heir of the world. And this was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. So to Abraham and his descendants is the promise you get the world as your inheritance. Now the question is, do all you Gentiles, maybe a few Jewish people here, that's wonderful, but most of you are not Jewish physically. All you Gentiles, do you qualify to be Abraham's offspring? And here's what Galatians 3.29 says. If you are Christ's, that is if you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean, it couldn't be clearer, right? If you belong to Messiah Jesus, you are an heir of Abraham. Abraham's heirs inherit the world. Sound familiar from the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. That's pretty big. That's a pretty big inheritance. Are you scrounging? Are you, are you in war with your sister over an inheritance? Shame on you. Let her have it. You own the world. It's only a matter of time and very short time. This is one of the reasons we get radically changed with regard to stuff, right? We own the stuff. Prosperity gospel says you got to have it now. Bible says get it later. Give it now. Give it now. Live to use the stuff for people. Lay your not up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal because where your treasures, there will your heart be also forever owning everything. So the first answer to the question, what's your inheritance? Everything that God ever made is yours. Now that is so spectacular, it needs more, more support perhaps. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell therein. So that's a verse that says, what does God have? What does God own that he could uh, put in the will for his children when his son dies? Everything, the world and all it contains, the earth and those who dwell therein. Now, if that sounds strange to you, like, oh, people too? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. Why do you boast in men? For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos 
or Cephas, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. I mean, these are breathtaking statements. Breathtaking statements. If we believed them, everything would change. Everything would change. Everything you look at in this world and are envious or covetous over, it's yours. Just wait. Don't be greedy. Greedy sends people to hell, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. That means if you say to God, I don't like your timing. I want my inheritance now. You're like the prodigal son. Give it now. I like the stuff. I want it now. I don't like your timing. You don't want to pass through the suffering on the way to the inheritance. That's not the Holy Spirit witnessing. The Holy Spirit says, Father, I trust you. Lord Jesus, you're my king. I trust you. Whatever it takes, I just want to be, the, I want that inheritance. Whatever your timing, whatever your path, just bring me home. That's where the Holy Spirit talks. What does that mean? I mean, let's just get practical for a minute. When it says all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death, like death is yours. Are you excited? Death is yours. What in the world does that mean? Things present, things to come, death, Paul, Apollos. I don't think I want that. You know, death. No, thank you. I don't want that as part of the inheritance. That's 1 Corinthians 3.22. Death is yours. Don't boast in men. You have death. Okay, let's just get real practical. What does it mean to have everything? If there are two cars... And somebody says, which one is yours? He says, that one's mine. The Toyota there, Matrix, the yellow one. What do you mean that's yours? That's mine. What, what, what do you mean? You mean, well, I can get in it. I can drive it. It's mine. I can do with it what I want. It, it serves me. It's there at my disposal. It's there to meet my needs. I get groceries. I go to the doctor. It's, it's mine. I use it. It helps me get where I want to go. It satisfies the needs that it's supposed to satisfy. And that's, that's what yours means. Death is yours. Does what it's supposed to do. Gets you where you want to go. Meets your needs. And so is everything else yours. Everything works together for the good of those who love God. It's all yours, meaning it's all servants. Even, let's, let's try this. Um, a little later in Romans 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Now, you should be thinking, No, they can't separate us. They're mine. Meaning, my servants Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, they're mine. They serve me. Is that what the text says? It is. Because the next line is, 
What shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is verse 35 of Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No! In, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Have you ever paused to say, what's more than conquer? Conquer is good. What do you need more? What's more than a conqueror? I mean, like a con- if you're in a battle with tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and you're the conqueror, they lie dead at your feet. You're dead. I conquered you. And the Bible says, you're more. Well, now, what, what, what's better than that? What's better than that is if they get up and serve you. They're dead. That's fine. I killed you. I'm a conqueror over tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. You're dead. I'm triumphant. And and Bible the Bible says it gets better. Get up. Serve me. You're mine. You're my slave. You serve me, tribulation. You can think of a text. Yes, you can. Romans 5.3. Tribulation serves you. Death serves you. Famine serves you. They are yours. Everything is working together for your good. Now and for your satisfaction and everlasting joy in the age to come with no downside anymore. So I think it's pretty practical. You just have to believe it. So that's my first answer. What is your inheritance? Everything. The world and all that's in it, including all the pain. Yours, your servants. They, under God's fatherly providence, they serve you. Come back to that issue in just a minute about God's fatherly spankings. Second meaning of inheritance. God is your inheritance. Look at, or listen, to Romans 5, 2. Middle of the verse. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. What are you hoping for? The world and everything in it is going to be mine. Yes, yes, yes. That is absolutely right. Anything else? If there's nothing else, you're an idolater. God is our inheritance. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And if you think, oh, it just says the glory of God, I mean, that's the stuff. Verse 11, just a few verses later in Romans 5, says, And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My final boast, my final treasure, my final exultation and joy is not anything God made, not any radiance of God merely, but God Himself. That's my treasure. That's my ultimate inheritance. God gives me Himself. Listen to Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God himself will be with them 
as their God. That's the final paradise. Yes, there will be a new heavens, a new earth, and new everything serving us. But the way it will serve us is intensify our capacities to discern the glories of God. We will see God in everything. We will love Him in everything. All the food and all the beauties of nature and all the sweetness of relationships won't be idolatrous anymore. There won't even be a whiff of temptation to be idolatrous in the age to come. Everything will be enjoyed for itself as a a, a catapult into God's worship. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25. If God himself is not precious to you, you are a stranger to your inheritance. If you only love God because of his gifts... And not because of his beauty, sweetness, justice, goodness, kindness, meekness. You are a stranger to your inheritance. God is the apex of our inheritance. That's number two. So the world, God, now here's number three. Your inheritance is a glorified body. A new body. So I'm looking at people with bodies here. And and they're all... Dying. They're all decaying, wearing out. And that's a sad thing. Plato and all his heirs thought, Good riddance! Get rid of this body! Let my spirit free! That's not biblical religion. You get a new body. You don't throw away a body. This body becomes glorified body, like the resurrection body of Jesus. He ate fish after the resurrection for a reason. To show that he wasn't a ghost. He said, ghosts do not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. Touch me. Do you have anything to eat? And he ate fish before them. So I fully anticipate Good fish. There aren't, there aren't many good fish. Good fish in the kingdom with a lot of rich, unhealthy batter that won't hurt anybody. It's going to be wonderful. You eat all that stuff that you're not supposed to eat now. And miraculously, it will be made healthy for us forever because we've got these glorified bodies. I really believe that. I mean, that's funny, but I believe that. I believe everything good in this world, good that has a downside to it because of the fall, won't have the downside anymore. That's just totally what I believe. We know, this is Romans eight twenty two. we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Get this. We who have the first fruits, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Paul had no shame in saying, I'm so ready for a new body. I'm just so ready. I mean, Paul suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. His back must have been one tangled mass of scarred flesh because he was beaten 39 lashes five times. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. And he wanted a new body. And the older you get, the more you'll understand. (laughs) So here's my summary. Number one, what's your inheritance that as the Holy Spirit testifies that you are his, you will get this inheritance. And the evidence that he's working in you is that what I'm describing to you right now sounds attractive. You really want God. You'd love to live in a new heavens and new earth. And you'd love to have a new body so that you had the capacities to enjoy it purely and not sinfully. Don't, don't I have lots of pleasures in my life and almost all of them are contaminated. I mean, most innocent pleasures are wrecked by idolatrous John Piper. You know, you're given this wonderful pizza to eat, and and you eat it, and you realize, oh, I wasn't as thankful as I should be, and uh, it didn't catapult my heart to God. It was just an end in itself. And you say, God, would you just please get me to the place where I can really eat pizza? (laughs) Worship, worship, worship. With pizza. And I long for that. I really do. I want to be done with sinning. I want to be done with second-guessing myself all the time. Right? I just hate it. I, I hate the curse that is on this world where it says, we groan waiting for the, the redemption of our bodies. And that's not just because you can't see anymore and your back hurts and you got elbows that don't work right and you got cancer. That's not the only reason you need a new body. You need a new body because there are pleasures out there that are so stupendous you don't have capacities with this old body to even begin to enjoy them yet. And all the pleasures that are good here that you could enjoy purely, you can't enjoy purely here because it's always messed up by our fallen brains and usually I'd just like to be done with all of that so that I could purely enjoy what you have made not to be an idol but to be a a means of worship. So that's the world, God himself and a new body are the inheritance. Now one last thing. Suffer with him. This is the scary part of the promise. It says at the end of verse 17, Um, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The only way, the only path, there's only one path. There are not a lot of roads. Like over here, the suffering less path and the suffering path. There are two paths, thus no suffering path to the inheritance and the suffering path. There isn't two. Verse 17, there's not two. You can get there on one road. Trouble. Affliction. With Jesus. So it's a conditional promise, as most of them are. But Paul in no way is undermining your assurance at this point. He's helping you. Because if he didn't tell you that the pathway to the inheritance was a conflicted 
pathway. You'd be bumping into this stuff over and over again. Where are you? Where are you? I thought I was your child. And he's saying, you are my child, and I'm telling you as my child, I bring you home through suffering. That's what he's saying. And that's good news for us. Because if you didn't know that's how he brought you home, you'd think the suffering was a detour. Or maybe I'm not a child after all. Things wouldn't go so bad for me if I was really a child. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're experiencing tough stuff in your life because that's why I bring you home. So let's think about that for a minute. Here's a few other passages to put it in perspective. Luke 9.23 If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. Cross. What's a cross? Death. It's an execution place. Put it on daily. Daily we die. Paul said, I die every day. There's something in every day that's got to be died to. Something's coming your way, promising you life that doesn't give life. And you die. No! I'm dead to you. That's a little affliction, a little teeny affliction, a little teeny suffering. You're putting that cross on every day, and something comes your way. You know, you can use the standard pornography thing. You can do that. Or it could be money. Or it could be some opportunity to puff yourself up on Twitter. <laughs> and you don't, you don't buy it. You don't buy it. You just say, no, I'm dead to that. Little teeny, little teeny denial. Little teeny affliction. Some of them are huge. We'll get to those. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, sooner or later, in America or Somalia, sooner or later, a life sold out to Jesus in every way gets persecution. Might not be big in America yet. It, It might be. Little ones are painful too. Little eye rollings at work. You're one of those born again jerks who hate gays. And you say, I'm not. I'm not. I am born again, but not that. That's not easy. Hebrews 12 6. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. He chastises every son. That's an important word, every. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. That's Hebrews 12, 6, and 7. Every child of God is disciplined by God. And the context there is pretty serious because it says, you have not yet suffered under the shedding of blood. So they're not quite at the point where the persecution is violent. They're at the point where the persecution is ostracism. And he says, that's, that's me. That's my fatherly love for you. I, 
I discipline those whom I love. And my discipline providentially happens through opposition from other people. Now you've got a a paradigm, you've got a context in which to handle the tough stuff you're bumping into in relationships. This is pathway to inheritance. This is Father all over you. Abba, Father. He says, I'm here in their criticism. Or 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So here's my inference from those texts and Romans 8.17. No pain, no gain. No cross, no crown, no suffering, no inheritance. That's the way God has set it up. In other words, when it says in Romans 8.23, we're groaning. I would say all the groaning experienced on the path of obedience is what the suffering refers to in Romans 8.17. Because if you limit it, to only hard things done to you from others because you're a Christian, you're, you're missing a big piece of your suffering. Every pain in your life, every frustration in your life, every conflict in your life, every difficulty in your life, that you experience walking on the path towards the inheritance is suffering with and for Jesus. Because it is being used by the devil to threaten your faith and used by God to strengthen your faith. And if you will embrace it the way verse 17 says, it's your pathway to glory, God is triumphant and the devil is defeated. I don't care if it's a stubbed toe on the way shopping. How you handle a stubbed toe in relation to God Almighty bears witness of your faith in His providence. If you're in His face, I'm so out of getting stubbed toes. That's another problem today. This is a bad day. Look, if you're not in hell, it's a good day. Why... Let's close with this question. Why would God ordain that the pathway to the inheritance be suffering? And only suffering. I mean, there is no other path of suffering-free access. doesn't mean everything on the path is suffering. You know that. We're sitting here in a very nice place. And I'm feeling really good right now. I have no stomach ache, no headache, no backache. I'm just... God is good, right? I don't mean there aren't good things on the way. I mean... There will be suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, Acts 14. There's no other way. Now, why would that be? Why would God set it up that way? Here's a clue from Romans 5, 3. Not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, or in other word, endurance.
Endurance of what? Faith. How does that work? Every hardship, from the tiniest stub toe to the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, from the smallest to the biggest, every hardship in your life is the kicking out from under you of a prop that was supporting your happiness. You can either curse God or fall on God. And God is kicking them for you to fall on Him. Because that's what makes you strong. Paul, remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8? We were so unbearably crushed. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. That was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. God brought Paul to the brink of death for one reason. There was only one person to trust now, the God who raises the dead. All of our hardships are designed to make our, make our faith stronger, to make us rely more on God. From the littlest to the biggest, that's why it's the pathway to glory. We've got to trust Him. Faith is the only way to heaven. And tribulations serve our faith. If the Holy Spirit is testifying that He's your Father, if He's not, you get angry at God. I don't want this anymore. I'm out of here. If this is the way the children get treated, I'm out of here. You don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, Father, I need you. This is hard. This is really hard. But you're my Father and Jesus is my Lord and this is the pathway to the inheritance. So I'm all in. Help me. That's the way the Holy Spirit talks. So if you respond to hardship with, I need a Father and Jesus is my Lord, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you are the child of God. I'm going to close with a story from John Newton. Some of you have, I hope, heard of this. I come back to it over and over to convict myself of my murmuring. You know, Paul said in Philippians 2, do all things without murmuring. I said, oh, is there any more condemning verse in the Bible? <laughs> all things without murmuring. Murmur, murmur, murmur. So here's what happened. This is John Newton writing in the 18th century. So there are no cars. There's only carriages. So picture a horse-drawn carriage. A man is on the way to New York to get his inheritance. And here's what happens. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. Okay. Let's just say it's worth $5 million. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city. This is where we are in our walkway towards heaven. Which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if, he saw, if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. 
because he's on the way to an inheritance worth millions of dollars. He can fix the carriage. (laughs) But now, here's my addition to the story. Sometimes your kid falls over the cliff when the wheel comes off the carriage. And you fall out of the carriage and so crush your knee, you never walk normal again on the mile that's left in your life. That happens. So I don't want to make light here of broken carriages. We all can laugh at a broken carriage. Not as easy to say, I lost my kid when he was five. 21 of leukemia. I've buried so many kids. There's a whole, you know this, there's whole sections of Woodlawn Cemetery with little teeny places. And to carry, to watch a dad carry a white box like this is a carriage that you don't make light of that's broken. But he can know for himself, for this child, for his wife, he can know just a mile, just a mile over the hill. I get the child. I get the wife. I get the health. I get the world. I get God. I get a new body to enjoy it all. And that's how his tears will not be the tears of those who have no hope. He will weep. We will weep. Though we won't weep as those who don't have an inheritance. So my prayer for you now is that God would awaken the witness of the Holy Spirit, causing you to call out, Abba, Father, and causing you to hate the sin in your life that murmurs against the the Father and betrays the Father. And if those two things are happening, the Spirit is speaking loud and clear into your life, your mind. Let's pray. So, Father, How deep, how deep is the Father's love for us? That we should be called the children of God. That we should be granted to walk on a suffering-strewn pathway to an infinite inheritance. Oh, give us patience, oh God. Give us deep confidence in you. Holy Spirit, move in this room, even as we sing in these closing songs. Move to quicken faith and to enlarge assurance and to prepare for suffering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.